Let's go to Acts chapter 18, verse 12. Last Sunday, probably most of us watched some or all of the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 50. And, you know, it's easy to be impressed with the the skill. And, and Carla, I'm going to give you a shout-out on that because, uh, yeah, Carla's a lifelong uh, Bronco fan. and I didn't think they had a chance in that game, but, boy, uh, that was an awesome, awesome way to win, you know. Uh, and I'm really glad for Peyton because it was just ironic. His little brother had two rings and he only had one. So I think it's only fair that when you look at his his career, although I think he'll admit he wasn't at his best at this point. Um, but anyway, that's a different thing. So anyway, Carl, I was thinking about you watching the game as it played out. But you watch those players on, on both sides of the field, both sides of the ball, and it's it's hard not to be impressed with their athleticism, their intensity, their speed, their strength, their guts. But what you don't see on your television, you can't see on your television, is the years and the decades each one of those players worked and trained and practiced when there were no crowds around cheering for them uh, just to get into position to maybe be in a Super Bowl, much less uh, for the Broncos to actually win it. And the reality is uh, that kind of success in sports uh, involves uh, prolonged effort and a lot of focus. I think we would recognize that. I like the saying, the will to win, the will to succeed in sports means nothing apart from the will to work. And I know that, that uh, good baseball coaches, football coaches, and swimming coaches uh, are trying to instill that in middle school students and high school students. You Kind of play like you practice, you gotta work hard. There's a lot of similarities though between sports, success in sports, and success in the spiritual life that apply to each one of us here today if we're believers in Jesus Christ. It's not easy, uh, it doesn't come overnight, and uh, spiritual success involves commitment, consistency, and dedication, just like becoming a great NFL athlete involves those characteristics. And I would boil all that down in the spiritual realm with one word, Chris. I would just say that's that's faithfulness. Faithfulness is one of the key components of spiritual greatness. And we're going to see this morning the Apostle Paul finish a missionary trip he went on many years ago. But we're going to see a principle that applies not just to him 2,000 years ago, applies to Brant as he does his college thing, and Joe as he gets up and goes to work every day, David, and each one of us, uh, namely that greatness is all about being consistent and dependable and faithful. We're going to focus on the importance of faithfulness in the Christian life. Uh, speaking of people who are faithful, uh, one reason we're able to do things like this without fear of government arrest or persecution is because of our Constitution and those who defend it. And this is a collage of people we know and, and love. And Carl, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Give us a uh, 90-second capsule on what's going on with John and his family. Yeah, when does his tour end? We're talking about this guy here, John uh, John Christian. Yeah, you're not home to your you're not home to your home in the army. 
yeah, strange in there. Okay, so that's, that's John. All those guys have stories. Uh, uh, Harmony Moore and the kids, Eleanor and, and Under, were leaving to go to California and eventually Oregon this weekend. I'm, I'm not sure what this weekend means. If it meant Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday? Okay. But David will be here another month in, in town with the older kids. So we need to probably pray for David <laughs> now that mom's leaving. But let's pray for our troops that are so faithful in protecting us and also our peace officers and firefighters. And let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's word this morning as we open it up. Okay. And, uh, Danny, Danny Pollock, go ahead and pray for us in that direction. Okay. Thank you. Uh, boy, I tell you, TBF has got a lot of world-class people, and Danny is right at the top of my list. I love that guy. Uh, talking about faithfulness, uh, an area that a lot of us could probably be more faithful in is prayer. And I was thinking about that today, this week, and I came up with the top seven signs you might need to pray for your pastor. Number uh, seven Instead of daily studies of the Bible, he invests his time in daily studies of his horoscope. So he's looking at his horoscope. That's not good. His favorite theologians are John Calvin, John Wesley, and John Wayne. Uh, His church is filled with problem people like these two. Boy, that's that's special there. Uh, number four, in a recent interview with the Duncan Banner, he revealed his all-time favorite devotional author is SpongeBob SquarePants. That's not good. Number three, his office is filled with life-size pictures of his personal heroes, George Washington, Homer Cox, and the Three Stooges. Number two, at the last elders and deacons meeting, he insisted TBF start donating 50% of its offerings to promote the important work of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not good. And the number one sign you might need to pray for your pastor is he's in immediate need of a toupee, corrective eye surgery, a charisma transplant, and he looks anything like this. That's that's as good as it gets with the cap on. Okay. Uh, we're going to look at verses, Lord willing, uh, verses 12 through 22 this morning. But uh, let's say a word or two about the context, the broad context and the more immediate context. The context for uh, our passage today is what's called the second missionary journey. Now watch this. Paul goes on three missionary journeys we know about in the book of Acts. Okay? Now he starts, he always starts at Antioch. Antioch Bible Fellowship. Okay? Now, my friend Brian Payne thinks it was First Baptist Church of Antioch, but I'm quite sure it was Antioch Bible Fellowship. And at the beginning of that church, of that trip, Paul and a guy named Silas went overland back to the Galatian churches Paul had started during the first missionary journey. This is the second missionary journey. Okay? Uh, in Lystra, Paul and Silas pick up a new helper. His name is Timothy, right? And then up in Troas, they pick another helper up. His name's Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the importance of the second missionary journey, among other things, is this is the first time Christian missionaries went from Asia into Europe. 
And following a call from God, although Paul had originally planned to go in that area, he and the group go into Greece, which is in Europe, as we call it today, and plants major churches. They're not they're not bigger than this one, but they're major because they last and are significant. In a, a town called Philippi, and in a town called Thessalonica, Berea. What happened in Athens? They didn't start a church in Athens because he went to the philosophers, and they couldn't wrap their minds around the resurrection. They didn't like the resurrection. They couldn't believe in the resurrection. So he goes to Corinth, and he actually, as we'll see, uh, and I'll remind you in a minute, verse 11, he stays 18 months. Paul stays 18 months. And first, he does two things. He preaches the gospel, the fact that we're sinners, and we've broken God's rules, and we break our own rules, and God's not going to let sinners into heaven because we'd mess it up as bad as we messed up the planet Earth, right? So God is too holy to kind of write off the sin debt. But you know what he did for it for us? He paid your sin debt. He paid for my sin debt. Everything that could keep Gina out of heaven, and that's a lot of stuff, right? And everything that could keep you out of heaven, Jesus died and paid for on the cross and rose again. So the first thing he did when he came to Corinth, which was a town full of notorious of sinners, it was a very a town with a bad reputation. He preached Christ crucified. His death was for us as our substitute. He pays our way into heaven, and all we must do is trust in Him alone to receive that payment, to receive that gift. And then after that, He does something else, which actually moves me from. And by the way, let me finish the, the journey. Spends 18 months where in Corinth, and then today we're going to draw, read about Him returning back to Antioch and. He uh, gets in a boat in the uh, nearest port near Corinth and goes across to Ephesus. Hey, Homer, is Ephesus a real place? Can, can you go there and see archaeological proof it was a real place? A lot of archaeological proof, yeah. He uh, goes to Ephesus, and he comes down to the port, the big port in Israel called Caesarea. This is the church in Jerusalem that goes back to Antioch. So we're going to talk about that trip today as he ends his second missionary journey. So that's the broad context. Uh, the second missionary journey covered 3,050 miles. It involved two and a half years of work from April of 50 A.D. through September of 52 A.D. Uh, it involved 105 days of travel. And this wasn't a matter of going to the airport, going through security, waiting two hours for the plane, getting on a plane, flying three hours, going through customs and immigration, getting your bags, and then going to Puebla. This is tough travel. This is walking this is riding on a horse. This is getting on boats, wooden boats in the middle of the Mediterranean, which is a scary place to sail when you don't have GPS, uh, radar, or anything like that. So this was a significant uh, thing that Paul did. As I say, when he was in Corinth, he preached the gospel. And it's interesting. First Corinthians is a letter about eight years after the second missionary journey that Paul wrote the church in Corinth, right? Uh, and he says, hey, remember when I first came to Corinth, I basically just told you two things about Jesus. I told you that Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again on the third day. That's how you start the Christian life. You don't become a Christian by going to church any more than you become a car by going into a garage. Have you ever been into a garage? Anybody been in a garage? Jack, you been in a garage? Are you a car? No, just going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You become a Christian through faith in Christ. You dare to trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation, right? Now, what's the essence of the gospel about Christ? 
essence of the gospel is he died for our sins and rose again. So we don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore because the one who died and paid for our sins was resurrected from the dead and the tomb's still empty. Several of us have been there and we checked and uh, he's not there anymore, right? Now, let's look at uh, a map of Corinth just so you know where it is. This is, a, this is a satellite picture that uh, Paul took on the way. No, uh, this was taken fairly recently. And this, this southern peninsula of Greece is called the Peloponnese. And on a little thin isthmus, just a couple miles wide, wide was the city of Corinth. And you can go, go there today. In fact, some of us have been there. Uh, that's a picture of some of the ruins of Corinth and the mountain up here where there was a temple that employed 1,000 priestesses that had very interesting religious rituals they would perform on their customers, which is why it was such a popular place. Those are the ruins of the Temple of Apollo in the city of Corinth today. There's another shot. Uh, I like that shot. I took that picture. And uh, anybody know who that is? You get extra points if you know who that is. Any guesses? Not Tom. Not Ron. Not me. But thank you for saying that. That's actually, that's Donetta's mother. <laughs> and you'll notice on the next, I think it's the next picture, we have a wider shot of the group, most of the group. And there she is, see? And there's Max. And uh, I think Homer and Susan there. And Pam's in there probably somewhere, and that's that's part of our group. I actually took that picture in, in ancient Corinth a couple of years ago when we were all there. A bunch of us were there. Another nice shot. Uh, interesting, uh, but true. Uh, there's a, a stone in, inscription that refers to Erastus, the treasurer of the city. Uh, David, who's the treasurer of the city of Duncan? Okay, Erastus was her counterpart, and we found this inscription, and it's interesting because in Romans and Second Timothy, this guy is referred to by name. He becomes a Christian, and he's referred to in Romans 16.23 and also in Second Timothy 4 toward the end of that, that book. So we're talking about real places, real people, real events, right? Um, yeah, so... Let me see what it's going to do. Yeah, okay. So, let's do this today. Let's look at verse uh, 12 through uh, 17 and talk about the conclusion of Paul's ministry in Corinth at the end of the second missionary journey, and then we'll look at the conclusion of the entire journey, verses 18 through 22. Okay? So, let's read uh, verses 12 through 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We're looking at the conclusion of Paul's ministry, and in fact, for, for a little bit of context, go back to verse 11, please. He preached the gospel in Corinth. Uh, a, a large number, it says, believed. He started functioning as a pastor slash missionary for most of the remaining time, and we read in verse 11, he, Paul, settled there in Corinth during the second missionary journey for a year and six months, teaching them. That's a function of believers, teaching the word among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of that region, we would call him governor today. Mary Fallon is the governor of Oklahoma. At this point, Gallio 
was the governor of Achaia, southern Greece. The Jews who had rejected the, the gospel, notice um, in uh, verse 5, but when Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Corinth, he began to devote himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said, your blood on your own head, it's on you. You're rejecting the gospel, it's on you. So they don't like Paul there in Corinth. So while uh, Gallio was the governor of the region, the Jews who had rejected the gospel and had no use for Paul, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. And that word judgment seat is one interesting word in the New Testament Greek, four letters, bema, looks like bema, but it's bema, like the E and they, a, bema, and it's translated judgment seat, but it just refers to a platform where there'd normally be a chair where usually governmental officials in cities would make pronouncements or give out awards, medals and commendations and things like that. Uh, so the religious opponents of Paul are angry, and so they bring, kind of as it were, they, they throw, uh, him, uh, they kind of sue him, as it were. They bring an illegal proceeding against him. Uh, verse 13, saying, This man persuades men, people, to worship God contrary to the law. Now let's say something about the uh, the judgment seat. Watch this. When you go to Corinth, or when you go to uh, Israel, you're going to see some sites that are absolutely authentic, slam dunk, no doubt about it. You're going to see some sites that are called uh, traditional sites. These are sites where certain things might have happened, but not necessarily in the right exact spot. For instance, uh, when you go to Israel uh, and go to Galilee the first time, everybody goes to the church of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes were the blessed are this and blessed are that, the first things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. So that church was built uh, in about 400 A.D. originally because it was believed that was the site where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in fact, that site was determined in 325 A.D., about 300 years after the fact, so it probably wasn't the exact site where Jesus gave that sermon, although he gave it someplace very close. That's called a traditional site because it's near, but not necessarily the exact site. It's not the authentic site necessarily at all. Uh, however, when you go to Jerusalem and you uh, see the southern steps of the temple, those are the steps Jesus would have walked on. Those are authentic. It's an authentic site, right? And when you go to Corinth, Archaeology really helps us a lot as we try to understand the Bible. I can show you the judgment seat, the exact authentic judgment seat that Paul, or what's left of it, that Paul would have been uh, brought before. Judgment seat is a platform on which there was normally a chair or a podium in which a city government official would make pronouncements or give out commendations. And there's a little plaque there on those restacked stones that are the original stones. And, uh, you know, the one, number one thing about visual aids is never say, I know you can't see this, but, but I thought that, would, that shows up pretty good. You see that? Uh, B-E-M-A, Bema. Bema is judgment seat. And this is the exact location where this event would have happened. Now for us as New Testament Christians, hold your place there. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. The importance of the judgment seat, that term, the bema, 
isn't the judgment seat in ancient Corinth that Paul appeared before, but it's an event that will happen after the rapture of the church where Christ is going to look at all of the fruit of Danny Pollock's life, not the sins and the mistakes and the things he should have said to Olga and the things he should have done for Olga, but all the things, the myriad things he's done for Olga. Right? As long as he did them for the right reasons. God's going to say to every believer, like Connie Norton, you know what, I love you, you believed in me, and I'm going to find stuff to like about your Christian life. But you have to have done the right thing for the right reason. Just doing the right thing for the wrong reason may make you religious brownie points as human beings. It doesn't count with God. It's not really fruit. But 1 Corinthians 3 is in context talking about the Bema, the judgment seat at which James Mitchell will appear and uh, Andrew Bowers will appear and Brad McCoy will appear not for residence in heaven or hell, but for rewards and commendation in heaven. That's what the judgment seat was like in Corinth. You made announcements and you gave out commendations and medals to people who deserve them. So notice verses 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians 3 is kind of the punchline here. It's the epicenter of this passage. When the Lord looks at Brad McCoy's Christian life, he's going to find some things that might have looked rewardable, but maybe I had a crummy attitude, and I was whining and complaining, and I didn't do it for right reasons, or I was doing it for wrong reasons. Uh, Christ is going to evaluate not just what you did, but why you did it as a Christian, which means every time you come to church, it might be a rewardable good work, or if you're coming just because your wife grabbed you by the ear and say, hey, big boy, you're going to church today, and you scream and kick and gripe all the way to church, but then you put on the happy face when you walk through the door and you fake everybody out. And when you do that, by the way, aren't you always glad you came after you get out here? Aren't you always glad? You, you always learn something and get something. But anyway, Christ's going to look at everything we've done as a Christian for the purpose of giving or refraining from giving us commendation and reward. If any man's work, not a sin, but the things he did or she did in her Christian life, with, which they built on it, the foundation of salvation, remains after Christ scrutinizes what you did and why you did it, that person will receive reward. If any man's work is burned up, he did the right things for the wrong reasons, uh, he'll suffer a loss of reward, but he himself will be saved. So that one word, Bema, can refer to a physical place in Corinth where the local governor made announcements or gave out commendations, or it can refer to this cosmic, spiritual but real event that's going to happen for you as a church-age believer. If you're not a believer, you will not appear before the judgment of Christ. Okay? But if you are a believer, you've got that to look forward to, and that should motivate you. That should motivate you to do the right things for the right reasons. Okay? So it's interesting that term is used here, and that's a very important term, as you can tell. Uh, this diagram is just an attempt to show you this. Now watch this. Salvation is not based on works, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works. But the passage goes on to say we've been saved for good works. So no one is saved by good things like going to church or praying or being nice to people. We can only be saved through faith in Christ alone. No one is so good they don't need Christ. No one's so bad they can't have him. Have you trusted Christ today? Have you trusted Christ before today? Today could be the day of salvation. But if you're a believer, you're in the set of the saved. Unbelievers, they die, got a place of punishment. But believers are going to have different levels of reward and commendation in heaven, just like the military. You get different medals for things. 
uh, you know, like good conduct medal, right? Victory medal. Uh, you get medals like the Purple Heart, like Bill had. Uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, not many people get that one. That's way up here. That's for uh, above and beyond the call of duty, right? It's interesting. This is going to be levels of commendation in the future based on the judgment seat of Christ for Christ- Christians. There will be levels of, of reward and condemnation. And Hitler and people like that are down here, right? There will be levels, and Jesus says that. Your judgment is going to be worse than that of the Pharisees for rejecting this, that, and the other kind of thing. So all this stuff ties together. Yeah, so keep reading. What's going to happen with Paul here? Uh, the religious opponents have brought him before the governor. Uh, and they charged him of violating the Old Testament law. And that's going to go really far with a Greco-pagan governor, isn't it, Steve? That's really going to get his attention, isn't it? And it doesn't fly, obviously. It's not true anyway. But when Paul was just about to open his mouth to defend himself, God took care of it. Gallio, the governor, said to the Jews who were accusing Paul of being a bad guy, hey, you know, if this was a matter of wrong against the city or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it'd be reasonable for me to put up with you, even though I don't trust you any further than I can throw you. But if these are just questions about words and names in your law, take care of it yourself. I'm not willing to be a judge in these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Now watch this. My translation says, Gallio drove them away from the judgment seat. And the big question you've got to ask is, did he drive them in like a 16-passenger van? Or was it a big Lexus or something? He drove them away, right? Is that what that means? No, it doesn't mean to drive them in a car. It means to have them, have the bailiffs, kind of get them, he threw them out of court. Threw the case out of court. Said, get away from me. I don't want to deal with this. It's ridiculous. Trumped up charges that don't relate to me. I don't care. Verse 17, they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, right then. At that point, he had been the leader of the synagogue in Corinth. Now, the commentators will say that they may refer to the ones, the Jews that got driven away, and then they grabbed him because they said they shouldn't have invited Paul to speak in the synagogue prior to get this thing started. Or more likely, they refer to the bailiffs who, in addition to uh, pushing away the crowd of Jewish opponents, zero in on the leader, Sosthenes. It means one of those two things. But the point is, Sosthenes is the leader of the synagogue and uh, began beating him in front of the judgment seat. The Gallio couldn't care less kind of thing. Uh, and the thing about it is, this Sosthenes guy, just like... Uh, Erastus is mentioned in other places in Scripture, uh, and specifically uh, when Paul writes uh, 1 Corinthians, he mentions uh, him as well. So it's interesting, he apparently becomes a believer after all this. So what are we seeing? We've seen the conclusion of an 18-month ministry in Corinth, real people, real places, right? And how did it end? Uh, you know, there's still a lot of people don't like Paul. The idea that if Christians will just get more cool, is that how you say that, James, or we say cooler? If Christians should just act cool enough, everybody's going to like us. Let's just punt away everything that matters so everybody will like us and not be offended by our morals or our doctrinal stances. Let's just look cool. Everybody's going to like us. It's not going to work. Uh, and if it did work, it wouldn't do any good because then you're just kind of not saying anything worth saying. The point is, if you're doing 
uh, Christ-centered ministry, some people aren't going to like it. You don't try to be uh, mean, crude, and angry about it, but uh, Paul generates a lot of opposition everywhere he goes, even though he's a very nice guy, but he was just uncompromising on the gospel, and that's what kept him uh, in a lot of hot water quite often with the powers that be. Let's go from the conclusion of the ministry in Corinth now to the uh, conclusion of the whole second missionary journey. Look at verse 18. Uh, but Paul, having this close call, remained many days longer, which means he didn't just pack up and leave that day because he was afraid they might do something else against him. He stays another couple of weeks, another couple of months. Luke's not specific on that. Many days longer. That would be a good question to ask Luke in heaven. You know, how many more? How many days longer? You know, is it two weeks, two months, whatever? But he didn't leave immediately. But he's kind of winding the ministry down after uh, 18 months in the city of Corinth. Uh, and then Paul took leave of the brethren, of the Christians in Corinth, and put out to sea for Syria. Now it says Paul put out to sea for Syria, but then it says that he goes to uh, Sincrea, and to Ephesus. So is that an error in the Bible? No, I don't think so. I think what he's saying is uh, he leaves Corinth for the ultimate destination. Oh, where's Corinth? It's in southern Greece, remember? There's Corinth right there. And when he leaves Corinth, he's been, you know, toward the end of this missionary journey, he wants to get back to where he started and kind of get some R&R. And that's where he's headed when he leaves Corinth, but he stops at a couple places along the way. So that's not an error. You've just got to be a good reader. About 98% of all the Bible contradictions are just bad reading mistakes, you know, kind of category mistakes, right? Okay. Go back to verse 18. So he stayed in Corinth several days, several weeks, several months later. Didn't leave immediately, but he's, he's winding down. And he put out to sea for Syria. That's his ultimate destination. And with him on this trip from Corinth, were Priscilla and Aquila. Remember them? Go back to chapter 18, verse 1, at the beginning of the ministry in Corinth. After these things where the philosophers didn't want to hear him talk about Jesus, although a few people did believe in Athens, but not so much the philosophers. After these things, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And when he got to Corinth, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus in Asia Minor originally, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because the emperor in 49 had passed a decree temporarily for Jews to leave the city and end up in Corinth. So we know when Paul gets to Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, these two, this married couple that are clearly believers, are already there. Now, and we don't know how long they've been there, but for a while. Now, when Paul leaves Corinth, verse 18 again, um, he's headed back for Syria, the region where Antioch Bible Fellowship is, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. They, they all leave together. Now, in Sincrea, he had his hair cut for his keeping a vow. Now, Sincrea, Sincrea, I'll say it two different ways. I'm not sure which is the correct, and the, the locals probably pronounce it differently than that. I'm using my Oklahoma accent, so I don't probably speak Oklahoma as good as I do. But, uh, yeah, that was the port just to the east. is more east than south. That map's kind of a schematic. Uh, Corinth wasn't exactly... Uh, on a navigable port. There was a port there and a port there. Uh, this is the port on the east side and toward the Aegean, and he's going to go ultimately to Antioch by, by way of several different stops. But notice what it says here. Steve, you got your net Bible? Uh, okay. Did you check the net Bible in this passage? 
Why not? No, you didn't have time. Okay, I get it. Uh, there, uh, there's a lot of good Bibles out there, a lot of good Bible translations out there. I mean, really, and, and I, I like just about all of them. Uh, the Reader's Digest Bible, not my favorite, because they changed the Ten Commandments into the Seven Suggestions. No, they didn't really do that. Um, uh, I'm not crazy about the New World Translation, uh, which is the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses paraphrase based on their theology, which is not a translation. But just about anything else is, is decent. Uh, you want, I think, a pretty literal translation is your basic study Bible. I like the New American Standard. But if you go to Bible.org, Bible.org, easy to remember, Bible.org, right? Uh, there's a group that does this uh, ongoing translation of the New Testament called the NET, like the Internet Bible. And you can buy it, a physical Bible from them, but you can access it free, online, 24-7. But they have extensive notes, uh, notes that engineers like Steve like. I mean, sometimes you read it, here's the page, and there'll be this much text in two-thirds or three-quarters notes on just fine points of of grammar and syntax and stuff for English readers, not just for people who have some Greek or Hebrew. But if you go there, their note on uh, the verse, notice it says, uh, in Sancria, he had his hair cut. So it is spiritual to get a haircut. For he's keeping a vow. Now, what's that got to do with anything? Well, thank you for asking that. A uh, couple of things. In the Old Testament... In Numbers chapter 6, there was something called the Nazarite vow. Now, there were some lifelong Nazarites who lived under this vow, but for the most part, as Numbers 6 describes it, for Old Testament Jewish folks, if men or women, and that's specified very specifically that men or women could do this, if you need special focus, maybe you're approaching your due date, maybe Blanche is getting ready to teach your Bible study and get it started, Maybe you're doing something else. You've got a specific a goal or ministry or activity you're you're going to depend on God to help you do well, and you want to really focus on Him in a special way. Uh, you could take this vow and ask for special direction and protection while you did it. But while you took that vow, you could have no wine, which was watered down, uh, carbonated uh, or I should say fermented grape juice, or strong drink, which was not watered down. Usually watered down three to one, five to one, or ten to one more of a water purification system at the 10 to 1 than anything to get excited about. But you couldn't have anything of the of the grape. You couldn't get a haircut, and you couldn't contact dead bodies. Okay? And there's reasons for that under the Old Testament law. But if you took this temporary vow to, for special focus, uh, and it didn't say you had to fast, but the implication is you're probably not spending a lot of time eating. You're just doing and preparing whatever you're working on. But at the end of that period, whether it was a week or a month or a year, You'd cut your hair, and you'd offer up a sin offering and a burn offering at the tabernacle slash temple. Now, Paul can't offer up a sin or burn offering at the temple because he's uh, you know 1,500 miles away from it. So many commentators say, hey, the Nazarite vow was designed for Old Testament folks living in the land, but it's pretty obvious into like the 5th or 6th century that Jewish people, Jewish people with Jewish background, uh, who couldn't get to the temple to finish the vow with the ritual offerings, kind of had a version of it. It wasn't technically a Nazarite vow, but it, it involved special focus, and I'm going to be ritually pure, and I'm not going to drink anything uh, of, the, of the grape juice, and I'm not going to let my hair cut. I'm not, going to take, I'm not going to waste 30 minutes to get a haircut, although for me it takes about 30 seconds for my haircut. 
I'm not even going to waste any time. I'm just going to focus on preparing and doing my mission I'm focusing on. So that's what's probably happening here. That's what's happening here for sure on that. But here's the kicker. This is why I was kidding Steve about the Net Bible. You'll notice in whatever English Bible you're using, it says something like, in Sancria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping and now is finishing the vow. Uh, well, you know, if, if this is Paul, he had maybe some special thing he wanted to do before he could leave Corinth. He's been focusing on that. And now he's done and, and going back home, as it were, so he gets his hair cut. But here's the thing. That Bible says this. Uh, it says, uh, in Sacria, he was keeping a vow. And then it's got like a note that says, this may mean Aquila, not Paul. And it says, the relationship of the participle to get your hair cut is difficult to determine. Are we talking about Paul getting his hair cut or Aquila getting his hair cut? Traditionally, it's been taken to refer to Paul, meaning that Paul had his hair cut off because he'd been keeping a vow. However, due to the proximity of the noun, Aquila, in the reversal of the normal order, Aquila and Priscilla, the participle is taken, taken as referring to Aquila by a guy in TDNT, which is a high-powered Greek lexicon. So it's very possible, and we can ask him in heaven, when you bump into Paul or Aquila, that this should read this way. Paul, having remained in Corinth many days longer after the big dust-up at the judgment seat, eventually took leave of the brethren, as he'd been planning to do anyway, and put out to sea to get back home to Syria and Antioch. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila, and in Sancria, uh, Aquila had his hair cut, because he had been keeping a vow. So for what it's worth, it could be a reference to not Paul, but this other guy. But either way, that's how you would kind of decipher that. Keep reading. And let's go back to the map. Yeah. So where are we? Where are we now? We're getting haircuts somewhere. Where? Not very far from Corinth, right? We're just getting started. Just getting to the port. Now, uh, this next couple of verses are called a travel log portion. Just telling you how they, how they kind of get back to where they started, where Paul gets back, where he started. Uh, then they came to Ephesus. How do you get from Sancrea to Ephesus? Very carefully. Yeah, you got, you got to go by boat. You can't drive there, you know. Yeah, you go right across the Aegean and boom. Now, what do you know about uh, Ephesus? It was like the third largest city of the ancient world at that time. Huge archaeological site. And at, this is second missionary journey, right, Derek? When we get to the third missionary journey, Paul's going to spend three years of the third missionary journey in Ephesus, planning, getting that church really going. But they go across to Ephesus. That's just a good place to get started. Nice port at the time. Nice place to rest up before you get back uh, to where he's headed. And notice what happens, though. They came to Ephesus, verse uh, 19, Dennis, and he, Paul, left Aquila and Priscilla there. And, you know, Aquila was looking good because he had his hair shut, short, nice and tight. So people go, wow, who's that, who's that dude? So he leaves them in Ephesus. That's going to be important because, you know, they, they were in Corinth when he got there, and now they're going to Ephesus, and they're going to do some things to really help lay a foundation in Ephesus, especially with a guy named Apollos that we'll see in the next couple of weeks. So they came to Ephesus, first leg of Paul's journey back to Antioch Bible Fellowship, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Now he himself entered the synagogue where the Jewish folks would meet on Saturdays, and he reasoned with the Jews about Jesus. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he probably was only there for a few days or a couple of weeks at the most, he did not consent. It's kind of like at the end of your Pueblo mission trips. You know, they, they really 
would like you to stay a little longer, don't they? And it's, that's a good thing. When you work with people in the international mission field and they're happy to see you leave, that's not a good sign. You, know, you kind of want them to wish you could stay for a couple more days. But they want him to stay. They're interested in hearing more about Jesus in the Old Testament. But taking leave of them, he says, I will return to you, that's plan A, if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. And that's interesting, because when a lot of us say that around here, we mean it. You know, when I say next Sunday, God willing, we'll do this, I mean that. I don't know if I'm going to be here next Sunday. Uh, I have plans. My plans are to be here. But I might not be here, okay? Anything you can see, anything science can measure, I'm, a, I'm all about science. i got a biology degree. B.S., Bachelor of Science in Biology. I'm all, anything you can see can be gone in 30 seconds or less. I mean, the atoms don't go anywhere. But you can't see the body as people die or the things get destroyed or blown up and things like that. So uh, the idea that that's just kind of a jargon that Christians throw out, Paul said it, and I, I think when, when I hear you guys say it, I know you mean it. I, my plan is come back if God wills. One reason he's saying that is, hey, my plan for the second missionary journey was to go to Ephesus the first time, and God had a different plan for me. So I'm, I'm going to have to make sure my boss checks off on my plan. But if God wills, I will come back. I'm planning on making another mission trip, and in fact, he ends up doing that, spending the bulk of the third missionary journey just just being a pastor in Ephesus, which is a full-time job. Uh, so we go from Ephesus, and he doesn't tell us exactly where they stop. This is a schematic where a typical uh, ship, uh, the kind of the route they would sail to get to Caesarea. Caesarea is this big port that Herod the Great, the guy who tried to kill the baby Jesus, built uh, during his tenure, and that's a great archaeological site also. He, he built a, an amazing harbor there. But that's where you sail in. And now notice, this visit to the church in Jerusalem isn't stressed by Luke here, so this wasn't a big deal. But he's so close to, to uh, Jerusalem. Notice in verse 22, Derek, it says, so when he, Paul, and whoever else is in that boat, uh, went to uh, landed at Caesarea, he, Paul, went up and greeted the church, meaning in Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a mountain. And then he went down, talking about as far as altitude is concerned, to Antioch. And what do we know about Antioch? It's the home church for all the missionary journeys, Antioch Bible Fellowship. Notice, Michelle, is an Antioch there. Is there any out there? Is that a mistake in the Bible, or is that a mistake in that map? There's a Paris, France. There's also a Paris, a Paris somewhere else, close to here. You know it? Paris, Texas. This is uh, Antioch of Syria. That's Antioch of Pisidia. That's one of the Galatian churches there, Antioch of Pisidia. That's Antioch of Syria. And Syria is in the news, isn't it? For a lot of interesting reasons, right? Boom. Okay. That's that. That's right, Val. Now, Take this to heart. Let's hold hold your place there in the uh, book of Acts and go to Matthew 20. Uh, an algebraic equation not taught in public schools would be Matthew verse 20, and i got a typo in your handout. It should say not 16 through 28, but Matthew 20, verse 26 through 28. But go to um, Matthew 20, verse 26. If you got a Bible there with you. Matthew 20. In fact, I'll tell you what, let's drive, drop back to verse 25. Okay, I got all my numbers wrong there. Uh, Matthew 20 plus Acts 18 
is really true spiritual greatness. What do I mean by that? Well, we said faithfulness. Uh, let me stress something. You know, when, when I'm talking about faithfulness in the second missionary journey, I'm not just talking about Paul or Silas or Timothy or Luke or Aquila and Priscilla. I'm talking about all the folks at Antioch Bible Fellowship who sent them out with some funds to get started, who prayed for two and a half years while they were gone. I'm talking about uh, the, the church in Philippi. The first major city he hits in Europe is Philippi. Starts a little church there. Uh, writes a letter there later called Philippians. And in that letter, about eight years after the second missionary journey, he says, you know what? You guys in Philippi are the only ones who sent funds to help me from day one. As soon as we left and went down the road about 30 miles to Thessalonica, you were already sending us funds to help us do our ministry. Nobody has been as faithful in that area as you have been. So you got a lot of little people who aren't mentioned in Scripture that you'll meet in heaven eventually. Say, hey, what period of history did you live in? And, and, and Pam, Pam loves details about people. Trust, just follow her around heaven. She'll find somebody who lived in Philippi during this time frame, and she'll just have a whale of a time talking to them. And say, yeah, yeah, we studied that book they read to you in the book of Acts. I mean, really, you bump in these people and say, wow, you know, Paul really thought you guys got the picture, didn't he? Stuff like that. But uh, so when I'm talking about faithfulness in the second missionary journey, I'm not talking about just the Apostle Paul because it's hard for me to relate to him because he's so much better and more, more gifted than I am. I mean, I'm just a little nobody compared to the Apostle Paul. But we're talking about a lot of people like me and you that aren't going to be rich and famous for the faith, but that were faithful and contributed to the mission. But look what Jesus says about faithfulness and what the one thing we want to be faithful in is servanthood. If you've been saved by Christ, you're to serve him and other people as a fruit, an expression of your Christian life. And if you do it for the right reasons, you're going to be commended at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus says uh, he called the apostles to him, and they're talking about which one of them is the greatest, which is a terrible way to think, even though a lot of Christians do tend to think they're a lot better than everybody else, which is just a terrible way to think, you know, if you've been saved by grace. Uh, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men uh, want everybody to salute them and call them Dr. This and Dr. That and Mr. So and Rabbi This, Rabbi That and bend, bow down to them, you know, kiss their hand, kiss their ring. It's not to be like that among you guys. But whoever wishes to become great spiritually, Jesus seems to assume you should aspire to be spiritually great. How dare you say oh, we should aspire to be spiritually great, Pastor Bad? That's just for... Apostles and pastors and youth ministers. Now, if you want to be great, and you should want to be great, right? Um, whoever wishes to be great spirits among you shall be your servant. And not whine about it. And not notice all the things you're doing for the church and for other people. If you're doing it that way, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Uh, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as I, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior, did not come to earth to be served, but why did he come, Blanche? To serve. And ultimately, the ultimate service is to give his life a ransom for many. So that's why I'm saying faithful. You can be faithful. I mean, uh, you know, you can be consistent. Uh, I remember a stretch in my base hardball career where I think I went 15 at-bats in a row without getting uh, a ball out of the infield. I think I had 11 strikeouts. Two pop-ups to the catcher, 
the two weak little, little nub, nub, nubbers to the to the uh, to the pitcher catcher pitcher. It was it was a very traumatic thing. Let me tell you. And then you know you only get like and I only got two bats at bats a game. So guess what? It's like seven and a half games, man. It's like what's wrong with the guy's bat? You know, it's like my bat had a disease or something. But you know, on the sixteenth time, I had a single right up the middle, right, right, right at the pitcher. You know, if you're really going bad in baseball, just try to hit it right at the pitcher. That forces you to swing right. But anyway, yeah. So I've had a lot of failure in that kind of thing. So you can be consistent and faithful in striking out and not getting ball out of the infield. But you want to be faithful as a servant. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, most Christians are all for servanthood in theory because they think, yeah, my wife should serve me better. The pastor should do more. The youth minister should do more. Yeah, we're all for servanthood. They're thinking we're paying the guy to do all the ministry for us. Uh, we're all for servanthood when somebody else is doing it, or it's quick, easy, involves a lot of people telling us how great we are after we serve. It's a little tougher when it's not convenient, it's not easy, people don't notice how great you are. And sometimes they'll even criticize what you did. You haven't lived till that's happened. And so that's one big hurdle to overcome, to be faithful as a servant in your family, at work, in your church. Another hurdle is described by, Jack Robbins said a version of this, and I'm sure he didn't make it up, because he stole a lot of really good sayings. Just Right, Jack? Uh, and we all do, uh, if you're in ministry very long. Uh, if you really want to do something, you'll find a way. If you really don't want to do something, what are you going to find? And a lot, you know, a lot of times the reason people give isn't necessarily the real reason. It's just the least embarrassing excuse. And, and that's not always true. That's a rule of thumb. There are things I want to do I don't do, and I'm not trying to excuse it, and I'm sure that happens to you all the time. And I don't second-guess hardly anybody anymore because there's always more going on than you're aware of. But just as a tonic for yourself, look at where your time's going, and that's probably what you really are prioritizing. You only get 168 hours a week. That's all you get. And if you really want to do stuff, you'll generally find a way. And uh, as, you know, as a pastor now, we have high-tech people calling us, me and James, wanting us to pay their bills and stuff. They just randomly pay churches to pay all their bills. Hello, Highway Bible Fellowship. Do you pay people's bills? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Every other Tuesday, line up here. We ask no questions. Uh, we print money in the basement of the Alamo, and then we give it out. You know, uh, it's not it's counterfeit, but you know. And so, you know, I used to think I had to go to that person's house and share the Lord with them and talk to them for five hours, and uh, I did that you know, in Shreveport for a couple of years, and eventually I figured out, hold it, these people have cell phones. When you meet them, they're usually smoking. It's expensive. They have tattoos. Those are expensive. They're, for a long time, they were driving a better car than I was. I've got the best car I've ever had in the last couple of years. So I'm, I usually have a better car than the people who need money now, which wasn't always true. Cause I always gave Debbie the good car. But, uh, you know, you have this high-tech kind of stuff. Uh, it's just amazing. These people want the church that we've never seen them. They want us to pay their electric bill. But they've got smokes, beer, a better car than most people have and cell phone, and cable TV. When you go over to their house, they have cable TV or, or dish. And I'm thinking, well, golly, I mean, where'd they get the money for that? But that's just me. Am I getting cynical? Maybe. Uh, one last slide, and we'll finish this. And talking about servanthood, look at the crowd. Look at the youth group. This is awesome. They're here not to listen to me talk. And you've only got like three minutes to go, and we're done. The happy ending is coming. They're here... So they can work. As soon as we're done second hour, they're going to set up, clean up, get the dinner ready, pass it out, and then they get to eat. At, we're going to be done about 7, 
the guests. Then they get to eat at seven and do some other stuff. They're here to serve. Is that awesome? If you're, if you guys are believers and you're doing this for the right reason, this is going to be totally rewardable. Okay? So just so you'll know. So that's impressive. Yeah, so this is a good message for you guys. I would just say, keep it up next week. <laughs> we'll see you next week, right? Uh, but, uh, yeah, one key characteristic of true spiritual greatness is faithfulness, consistency. The older I am as a pastor, the more I value people who are just consistent. Just, just be consistent. I don't expect you to hit a home run every time. Just, just swing at a good pitch, you know, try to make contact. And if someone will drop in, someone won't, you know. Uh, faithful believers keep on trusting and obeying and serving the Lord and others, resting in the fact that they realize that God works in the mundane, getting in a boat, getting out, getting a haircut, back in the boat, sailing across. You know, God doesn't send an angel to open up the Aegean so Paul can go there. He doesn't send a flying eagle that he can sit on and fly directly to Antioch. He's just got to buy a ticket and get on the boat like every other dumb plod that showed up that day. Uh, no miracles, no voices, no angels, just regular stuff you got to slog through. And you got to remember, God's at work in all the stuff, the mundane, the miraculous, the supernatural, the natural. It's really exciting when you pray for something big and it happens, or something cool happens you didn't pray for even, and you say, God, no, I needed that before I got it. And it's just a miracle, you know? Uh, it's harder to kind of stay faithful when you're not seeing a lot of those kind of things happening around you. But, hey, can you breathe? That's pretty good. That's a miracle, okay? Your eyes working, okay? Uh, did you fall off the, the earth as you walked into the church today? No. God, God has gravity working for you 24-7, Dennis. does all this stuff for us all the time in the natural, and God doesn't change a bit even when our circumstances change drastically. So let's prioritize Christ as believers by prioritizing faithfulness. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, speak to us through your word. Encourage us that even a travel lodge, a travel log section, Paul went here, there, and the other, uh, can speak to us. You can use it to reaffirm principles like faithfulness and servanthood. And thank you for each one who's here. I do pray, Father, for this youth group has worked so hard, and James and Shauna so hard already, to be uh, in position to put this on uh, tonight. I pray that uh, you make them tired by the end of the day. But I pray it would be a good kind of tired and that they and we would be reminded of that uh, servanthood and working together can accomplish a lot of cool stuff for your glory. And we pray that we'd be encouraged uh, by that and they'd be encouraged by that today. I pray, for, Father, for anyone in this auditorium who's not from the depth of their heart trusted Jesus Christ alone as their personal Savior. I pray you'd open up their eyes to see and believe, convict them of sin. They got it righteousness, they need it and can't crank it out, and judgment, it's coming, but that you loved us enough to send a Savior to pay our debt in our place. He rose again, and he gives eternal life to all who believe. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. It's my fault. I can't fix it, but you can. I want you to. I believe you died for me and rose again. I embrace you as my personal Savior, and because you've saved me, I want to serve you as my Lord. Uh, Father, anyone in this auditorium, open their eyes to see and believe. For the rest of us, forgive us for being better critics and contributors, better supervisors and servants, and just re-encourage us to embrace servanthood as maybe in faithfulness and servanthood as the hallmark of our, our Christian life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.